And I think our collective efforts should be focused on uh, making sure our voices are heard and that they're loud. Um, and that's not simply about getting more veterans into politics. It's about being a bit more clever about this, that for me, diversity and making sure we are representing the full breadth of our armed forces is now our future, is our future challenge or our current challenge. And let me explain what I mean by that a bit more. Um, it is wonderful to see so many um, veterans serving on the green benches of all colours, of all parties, uh, but most of them uh, are men and most of them are from the infantry. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations, and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force, and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice, and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. This podcast has been sponsored by Salesforce, the world's number one CRM enabling companies of every size and industry to digitally transform and connect with their customers in a whole new way through a single view of customer data and real-time insights that create personalized experiences and drive cost savings. Salesforce is proud to be a gold member of the Employer Recognition Scheme of the Armed Forces Covenant and is dedicated to its support to the military community. Internally, they run an initiative called VetForce, which is an internal employee alliance and it actively champions an inclusive environment for veterans and military families through education, philanthropy, and currently has close to 5,000 members globally. There's also an external program called Salesforce Military, which provides free enablement and recognized qualifications in the Salesforce ecosystem that can lead to employment in the industry post-service. This offer is open to serving personnel and their partners, as well as veterans. But welcome to Conservative Party Conference and Campaign Forces Fringe for 2022. Uh, and that is in conjunction with the Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces and Salesforce. So thank you very much to Salesforce to be able to make this happen uh, through our party conference events. Um, this is Veterans in Politics. We are Campaign Force. And I'm going to introduce you to today's panel for this party conference special. So first up, um, to my immediate left, uh, we have Mike Dooley, who, who is the um, Vice President for uh, Salesforce's Government, uh, Defence and Security um, sector. Uh, he's a former Brigadier from the Royal Signals and served in the Army at a senior level. So we're really lucky to have both the voice of a veteran um, and also the voice of business, because that's really important um, for reasons that I spoke about earlier, about how we can learn the lessons from business um, as well. We also, to uh, Mike's left, we have Donna Gavin, uh, who will be familiar to many of you, is a conservative activist, has stood um, in uh, local elections and, and devolved government elections, um, and is also um, a veteran of the Royal Court of Signals, just like Mike, uh, and is also on, on the parliamentary candidates list as well. Is that right? Yeah. Excellent. Welcome, Donna. Uh, and to sat next to Donna, uh, familiar face to many from the armed forces community, uh, and that is James Clark. 
Now, a little story about James. We actually did pre-deployment training for Afghanistan together, where I had to salute him and bang my yeah, heels in and all that good stuff. It's changed, okay? Um, don't do it anymore. Um, but it's great after all these years when we did our pre-deployment training back in 2011. All these years later, politics has brought us together. And James and I work very closely on the same mission, and that's to get the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I can't be party political, despite my blue team background, uh, but James can. So when people identify themselves to me as conservatives, uh, the friendship that we have within the family with conservative friends of the armed forces works really well. Um, and we've got some more news about our relationship with them to come at the end of today's event. So I'll just hold that there for a second. Uh, but James is also an army veteran, as I've alluded to, from the Afghanistan experience and served in the Mercian Regiment. Um, and many of you would have seen him on uh, the BBC film of that period or TV series of that period called Our War uh, which is one of the most moving and um, formative programs produced during that conflict so I do recommend you look that up um, he's also an army reservist like me um, so continues to serve in the reserve component of our armed forces uh, which make up approximately one fifth of our defence capability so an important part of our national security um, we're also going to be joined shortly by James Sunderland, MP. James is the most senior ranked veteran in Parliament in, within the House of Commons, having left the army uh, and then literally the next day becoming a parliamentary candidate um, as a full colonel in the Royal Logistic Corps. And James chairs the all-party parliamentary group on the Armed Forces Covenant and is also the chair of the Defence Select Committee on the um, Armed Forces Bill as well. So a really influential voice within the veterans community within Parliament. And he'll be joining us shortly. So we're going to open up with some, a few questions from me uh, as your host of Veterans in Politics. And I'm really interested to, uh, and as I ask this question, I'm, I'll be really encouraging you to reflect on this too. Uh, and that is the period that we've just been through, uh, through the, the loss of Her Majesty the, the Queen, which has completely moved the nation, affected many of us to the extent that we saw one million people walk past Her Majesty the Queen as she was laying in state. Um, so you cannot have ignored the enormity of that moment. But for me, I think what it has done is open up the debate and the question around public service and the value of service. The Queen was the epitome of service. So panel, I'll be really interested to know, given what we've just been through as a nation, um, losing Her Majesty the Queen, and do you think there's a renewed sense of an appreciation in the value of public service and what does service mean to you? So if I can just kick off uh, with Mike, please, uh, so for just some thoughts about service and Her Majesty the Queen. Thanks, Johnny. Um, you know, uh, our, our collective thoughts about Her Majesty and her, her passing, clearly, as Johnny articulates, there has been no better public servant ever uh, for this country than Queen Elizabeth. But to Johnny's point, do you think there's been a renewed... A resurgence in, in the willingness of people to volunteer themselves and, and take up public service? I think possibly yes. Uh, certainly I was very proud. I've only recently left the army, so I wasn't able to take any part whatsoever uh, in, in saying goodbye to Her Majesty, uh, and I regret that. But many of my friends have never served, uh, and so at least I have a feel for what it would have been like to be a part of that. They, they, they're even a step removed. And I, th I sense that they've regretted never having served 
as peer in age as me. So I'm very grateful for the 31 years service I have managed to give. I sense my peer group that haven't regret that. And I sense that it has captured the imagination of the nation and there is a requirement, a need to go for it. No, I completely agree. It really has captured the imagination of all of us and it moved us on that emotional level. That probably is quite unexpected. We all knew it was going to happen one, one day, of course. Uh, but I think she was very much almost the nation's grand- grandmother, wasn't she? She was so dear to us. And it really did capture the imagination of the nation. Um, but Donna, um, you held the Queen's Commission, of course, in the armed forces, just like Mike. Uh, but what's your view on this renewed sense of service being at the forefront of our daily debate? And what does service mean to you? Uh, so I think uh, probably like my um, ex-colleagues and peers, anyone that served, there's just overwhelming sense of pride that when you see people that you know or uh, you know units that you've served with representing and really kind of pulling out the baggage, I think they did an absolutely cracking job. Um, and I was just so proud. And we've seen, you know, I'll probably turn into chief commentator amongst my friends. I don't really know that much about drill, but I seem to know a lot on the day. Um, and uh, the public interest at uh, those times when we see, you know, our service personnel most visible, public interest around service certainly kind of peaks. But then, what I, you know, on the kind of more challenging front, we see at times perhaps when uh, service personnel are out of the limelight, and, you know, that, that there are times when that's the case that there is you know, some challenge around well, what are the army doing? Uh, what, yeah. what, are they, what are they busy doing? Because it's not clear to you know, broader society um, at times of peace what the army are up to. And, and, and we know that uh, maintaining an armed forces is a precise science. And the training cycle and the effort involved in preparing an army or an armed forces uh, to face our adversaries is huge and 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 that is time consuming and that costs and all those uh, all, all of that investment and so i think our job as the extended community as veterans and particularly those in public office our job is to be able to defend that but communicate what our armed forces are up to and the value that we we, we give to society in times of peace uh, and to the latter part of your question around service um service to me i think it's uh, it's pretty simple it's stepping up for our nation and acting in the interests of our nation but also it's about compromise and I think that's the that's the bit that separates perhaps now in my civilian job I don't need to compromise quite as much and part of service the intrinsic part of it is all the compromise that all of us have had to face in our lives not being able to say no having to move but the interests of the army uh, the armed forces and society first before our own and that compromise extends to our families, of course, as well. Indeed. Um, and they don't get a choice. Um, my wife, Lydia, is at the back of the room. And I know how difficult deploying to Afghanistan was for her. Uh, but that sense of service that really drove me to volunteer for that tour, um, obviously we discussed it. But um, at the end of the day, I made that decision. And that was my personal and family decision and a decision that you know was for the country as well. So service... Uh, is important. James, I already mentioned earlier on how we serve together and it gives me such great delight to be sat on this panel with you today uh, without too much of a love-in between me and James. But um, what does service mean to you? Do you think there's a renewed value in the sense of service? Well, first of all, I want to say this. There's absolutely no way Johnny ever banged his tabs into me. <laughs> I, I was busy running around getting you know, as much training value as I possibly could before, before going out to Helmand. Um, but I do remember him being a fantastic support and a fantastic... Um, 
well, I'm going to sort of steal my own thunder here. Johnny's very inspirational. So what does service mean to me? So service to me is about helping people. Okay, and that's something that um, people across society do. They they help one another. Um, you know, if you're a, a medic or a police officer, um, if you work for a charity, to be honest, even if you work for a business, you're generating tax revenue, you're paying in your taxes, you are you, you are sort of serving the community. But what I also think about service is it's about inspiring people. And that's something that, um, you know, I, I know Donna quite well. and I know people who have been inspired by her political journey. Um, you know, I've only met Mike briefly, but the way that he speaks, the way that he engages, I can tell that he, I'm sure, has elements of an inspirational leader inside him. And I've already talked about Johnny. One of the things that I think the Queen epitomised was that idea of service, of helping people, but inspiring others to follow that example. Um, and that that's... It's kind of very, very powerful um, to me, and that, that's what, what I think about it. I think another element of service, along with helping people and inspiring them, is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Because if you aren't sacrificing something, then you are kind of gaining something from that relationship or that situation. Mm-hmm. And in, in many, many situations uh, throughout my military career, I gained an absolutely enormous amount. I just, I, I, I just took as much as I possibly could from the, 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 the leaders who were leading me, from the, the soldiers who were, you know, just doing incredible things, um, with, with really very little, um, input from me. Um, but, but what, what it comes down to is at some points there were huge amounts of sacrifice. Um, and some people paid the ultimate sacrifice and, um, I think that's worth bearing in mind when we talk about service. And Johnny, if you don't mind, I'm just going to go on to another point and just I'm, I'm interested to sort of have the audience's opinion on this. Um, after the um, after the Queen died, um, there was a, another officer who I served with, who I won't name, uh, on LinkedIn. He, he, he put a post about, he sort of said, um, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's obviously an awful, awful time for the country and it's very upsetting that the Queen is dead. But, um, I, you know, he sort of said something like, but I see other colleagues and people who were, who've served in the military using her death as an opportunity to raise their own service. And he had some comments on the back of that that were kind of quite supportive, that kind of sort of said, yes, gosh, isn't, you know, lots of people coming out, you know, posting photographs of themselves in Afghanistan. I mean, I read that comment and I just thought, I feel like it's the opposite. Those people are saying that the Queen had such an enormous impact. She had such a huge level of service to the country. She inspired so many people that a little piece of them, they feel that connection with her. And that's kind of, I mean, I, I don't know about anyone else here, but I think it was the Tuesday. I, I cried my eyes out at lunchtime. I genuinely cried my eyes out. And I, and I was very, very upset and emotional thinking about uh, the royal family and how they felt. Um, and I was very fortunate to meet... Um, Prince Charles, now the, the, the king, um, he was the um, honorary colonel of the regiment. And I was thinking about that, about the family, but I was thinking about my service and my friends and, and the soldiers who served with me and some of the things they'd been through and some of the things we went through together. And I felt proud of the country. And, and so I would say, you know, if you have served in any branch as a citizen or as a soldier, be proud, be proud of that service. Yeah, and I mean, thanks for sharing that, James. And that sense of service extends to the voluntary sector. Many of you will be involved in charities or any linkages to things like um, the uh, Duke of Edinburgh's awards uh, or the Prince's Trust, all service-driven organisations within our society. And I think that's, there wouldn't just, no, not just those of us in uniform, 
but those of us linked to those organisations, that the sense of that loss, um, and quite frankly, a sense of hope as well about the future, about service, and with King Charles, um, his ascendancy to the throne. Uh, but I think that it's not just exclusive to us in uniform. I'd really like to stress that. But we've got some big uh, flag wavers for the sense of service. We are the salespeople of service uh, for party conference, I'd, li- I'd hasten to add. Um, but let's get into some of the nitty-gritty about what the Conservative Party's doing. I work cross-party, um, particularly with the three main political parties, uh, but joined by Conservative friends of the armed forces here today. Um, James, come straight back to you. I'm really interested to know, in general terms... What's the Conservative Party doing to engage more widely, not just with the veterans community, but the armed forces community at large? So the spouses, the partners, reservists like you and me, and also, let's not forget, the Cadet Force adult volunteers who volunteer their time so selflessly for our young people in our towns and villages across this great land. So James... What's the Conservative Party up to? So I think I think um, the first thing to say is that I was a panel on a panel um, this time last year, and we we had a whole conversation about uh, making the UK the best place uh, to be a veteran, the best place in the world to be a veteran. Um, and and at the time, I did loads of research, and I could reel off loads of statistics. Um, and I don't have those statistics in front of me right now, so I, I can't go into too much detail. What I would say is that the the previous Prime Minister um, agreed to have um, a place at the cabinet table for the Minister for. Um, uh, defence people and veterans um, that has uh, that is in a state of transition um, I believe the current situation is that um, James Heapy who is uh, Min AF is now that falls under his responsibility quite and he complex. has a seat at the cabinet table it is quite complicated um, I'm not sure if that's a backward step it, it doesn't feel uh, it doesn't feel great but I know that there's both politics and um pragmatism involved in all of these decisions and I do trust the current Prime Minister to continue that mission. Um, one thing that I'll, I'll sort of go from the macro to the, the micro, um, I know we've got um, uh, Ben Obiesjecti in the audience as well, he's, um, he's a, a big champion for um, the VAPCs, Veterans Advisory and Pensions Committee. I'm also on um, one of those committees for the Eastern Region and um, what I would say is that the, the government is trying to connect all of the different stakeholders in the veteran space through those VAPCs to then brief ministers. Um, in a way, they're doing what CF Armed Forces <laughs> tries to do in, you know, from a much more... Um, a sort of much more governmental, a much more proper um, sort of function. Um, but there is definitely uh, moves from the government to try and engage um, armed forces personnel and veterans uh, in its mission uh, without, of course, compromising their, their neutrality. I might pick up on one of those points, actually, and bring Mike into the conversation because uh, you pretty much mentioned the function of like the, the what, the framework that's in place in order for that connectivity uh, across the land around veterans issues through the VAPCs uh, but but the how how are you going to do that and one way of course is technology um, so having Salesforce here today as experts um, within that sector and through data driven solutions and technology be really interested to know your thoughts on that Mike listening to what James has just said picking that up well how do we do it yeah that's actually quite interesting what you just said there James so I've been tracking this for quite a while actually whilst I was serving as well bear in mind it wasn't that long ago uh, and have had a number of discussions with the VAPC sorry let me say that the OVA yeah uh, the issue we have was that the 
the information about who are our veterans is held uh, within uh, the MOD. It's held on by you know, a, a data system that's in the MOD. And that is not accessible by the Cabinet Office, the OVA. So what? So the, the issue we have is that when somebody presents themselves as potentially being a veteran out there in society, who validates that? How can we validate that? All their partners, in fact. Um, and so, in, indeed, I, you know, I've been with Ken Haynes at the APC from the Southwest. We, we combined have an aspiration whereby, and I'm really interested what you just said there, the VAPC acts as a sort of a, a clearinghouse, bringing in all those government organisations, agencies and, and charities in, in each of the areas uh, to themselves, and then they link to the OVA. But at the moment, they're bereft of data. The data of where the veterans are in a different system. If we just connected the two, you'd suddenly have information of who is liable to be a veteran with the, the mechanism of a government to actually do something about it. And that would be a really neat thing to achieve. So we've got the constructs, we've got a solution about how we're going to connect that, but we also need people. So we mentioned the VAPCs that are out in the regions. There are six of those across the UK. We mentioned the Office of Veterans Affairs as well. But at the end of the day, we need politicians, right? We need politicians and our local authorities to be able to deliver this whether that be um, through schools for our service families when they resettle, or whether that be making sure they've got housing uh, as they resettle in our communities. And therefore, I'm a big champion of getting veterans in local government. I mentioned local government is just as important, if not more important than Parliament, when it comes to veteran representation. So, Donna, you've um, dabbled in a bit of standing for elections. Um, <laughs> and of course, there are, there are some barriers, right? Let's face it, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, to become what is quite a niche, uh, quite odd to some of our friends and family as well, of getting involved in politics. I mean, what's, what's your response been like of, of trying to get involved in politics? Uh, what have been the barriers, the challenges, and how have you overcome those? So I might surprise you all by saying I found it surprisingly easy. Ooh. I like to characterise uh, politics as a bit of a slippery slope. And I think um, many in the room will feel that too, that... Uh, I, I got involved because I've got kind of angry about something, which typically, you know, that's a lot of our routine. We're angry about something. I won't you know, bore you all today by talking about PPE for women. Um, but to, to progress that, I contacted my MP and said, you know, I'd like to do something about this. I don't know how. I don't know what to do. Uh, but I need to do something. And this was sort of four years ago. Um, and that kind of resulted in a coffee, which resulted in all of a sudden I'm walking the streets delivering leaflets which then all of a sudden I'm being put forward and speaking to people on stages and then I'm going for the candidates list and then I'm asked. So it's a real slippery slope and, and actually it's a really supported mechanism. But one thing I did want to raise in answering this question was some reflections I had on why I think uh, veterans are pretty good at this. Um, and let me describe a little bit about a typical week as, a, as an army officer or you know whatever our flavours might have been that... Uh, when we manage soldiers, we manage the system of a soldier. We don't just manage the person. So as a civilian employer now, I you know, a, have a professional relationship with my employees. I'm not suggesting it wasn't professional, uh, but we manage the system of our soldiers. So on Monday, we might be dealing with housing issues and we might be sort of tackling whether, you know, the heaters, the, the boilers broken down or whether, you know, they're moving their family to Germany and then on Tuesday, we might be navigating their educational pathway through their trade training and making sure that they're on track for uh, whatever progression is required or you know, accommodating them around their leadership training. 
uh, and I, I don't want to sound too much like Craig David here, but then, you know, Wednesday, um, we might be looking at um, putting on our brown suits and holding a court-martial. And, and I know that others will feel this sense of responsibility about you know, removing, someone's, removing someone's liberty. And, you know, this is our, this is our judicial system in, uh, in the armed forces. And then, you know, later in the week... Uh, we might be sitting a health committee where we're talking about health pathways and mental health for our soldiers and, and recovery, physical recovery and mental recovery. Uh, and then later we might be navigating some immigration issues for our Commonwealth soldiers. You can see where I'm going. But basically what I've done here is I've walked around Whitehall uh, and I've dabbled in every bit of government policy through managing my soldiers. And there is no other job that I believe that equips you better to be able to navigate some of those processes and gives you the confidence in how to approach those. And, you know, we're signposters. And that's indeed what I, you know, my role was as an army officer and as a role as, a, as an MP also. You're a signposter to find the right services to fix a problem for someone. And that's why I think we're really well positioned to do that. Um, and to the latter point of your question around accessibility, what I think, how we can help veterans navigate this... Um, I think because you're, you join the process or the slippery slope, as I call it, a little bit late, uh, later than most, let's say. Um, and uh, some of the early challenges are around networking, uh, knowing who does what in the party and being able to uh, you know, position yourself in the, in the right way or speak to the right person. And by supporting each other to network, I think is really important and just help them draw those connections and navigate the sort of internal politics of politics. Um, but I do think we're perfectly well-placed um, to do so, so I encourage all uh, to engage. Do you know what? I'd love you to write an essay on <laughs> the transferable skills from the armed forces into local government, because what you've picked up on there are some hard skills, directly transferable, but I don't like to call them soft skills. They're human skills, right? I think it downplays it those human skills that you've got as well from service that make those from the armed forces absolutely brilliant in local government. Um, but I'd also be interested to know the view of industry, Mike, because as I said earlier, I nicked the idea from industry of how to engage, how, how best practice of solving industry problems through the veterans or reservist solution. Uh, I was inspired by that. And organisations like Salesforce, of course, have prescribed pipelines and pathways into tech so how has industry responded to the availability of talent um, values and behaviors from the armed forces community yes okay um, so there are other companies than salesforce that do some of what i'm going to say uh, so salesforce have got a, a, a veteran force of about five thousand of a workforce of around 67 so 60 000, so it's quite well represented in veterans but what it does, uh, which is not unique, uh, is it offers free online training uh, into largely, I'd say, say technical uh, areas, sadly, uh, uh, for, for free for serving folk, veterans and their partners into, uh, you know, with, with the right qualifications, into positions in the tech industry, not necessarily into the same company and go anywhere you wish. So that, that's quite a nice freebie they give back. Um, but what I'd like to see is that, that broadened more widely into other, other skills. But that, that's where we start combining with other companies, I think, that deliver that. So there are other companies that offer different sorts of perhaps more practical training uh, that, that, can, that can deliver that. And the holistic effect means there's a job out there for everyone that was currently serving and will be a veteran. 
And indeed, there are, you know, there are uh, contracts coming up, which, of course, we're going to bid for along with our competitors to try and make that happen. But I think the net result is that capability is coming the veterans' way. So they will be able to take people from serving, skill them up, everything from practical skills to technical skills or whatever their need is, to give them the best chance possible outside in the industry and or back into the agencies or reserves. So we've got industry who have realised it. They've set up pathways. They benefit from that talent. Uh, politics. Uh, until organisations like Con- Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces came along uh, and Campaign Force working cross-party, those pathways simply weren't there. Um, and James Sunderland, uh, who joins us, as a left the army as a full colonel. Uh, and I think, to summarise your journey, James, you pretty much was in uniform one day and then a parliamentary candidate the next. So going back to that Craig David analogy, <laughs> uh, if I may for a second. But we've spoken to you before, James, on the podcast about your transition, uh, that kind of flash to bang from the army engagement group commanding that uh, to all of a sudden becoming a political candidate and a civvy, a civilian. Uh, but can you tell us about a little bit more what we've done since then? So your work with the APPGs, your party parliamentary groups, uh, and also on the, on the armed forces bill as well. Be interested to hear that. Yeah, thank you, Johnny. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming along. I've got so much to say, but I keep it really brief. I think I was very lucky, ultimately. I was a serving army officer working at Sandhurst. Got a call on the Monday. And by the Friday that week, I was the parliamentary candidate for Bracknell. Um, on the Friday night, I PVR'd. For those who know what that means, it means that I left the army. Uh, got a call on the Saturday morning from Glasgow saying, what are you doing, Colonel? I'm leaving the army. You can't leave the army. You've got seven months left to serve in your contract at the election in three weeks' time. Um, but uh, as a very proud army officer, the army was good to me, uh, let me go straight away. They opened the door, they kicked me out, <laughs> and they closed the door behind me. And here I am now. So I think the first message basically is that uh, we can all do that. Right? The opportunities outside are fantastic. I was very blessed, very lucky. Um, had a great time in the armed forces and I felt very ready when I did leave, even though it was six days notice. I think to answer Johnny's question directly, um, I've been very privileged to serve Bracknell um, since 2019. Uh, it is thankfully uh, a very pragmatic area. We've got full employment, um, we've got fantastic healthcare, great roads, um, fantastic schools. The offer is brilliant, and I'm very proud to serve Bracknell. Um, and in terms of what I've done so far, I, I've been quite active with the Veterans All Party Parliamentary Group. I've chaired the Armed Forces Bill Select Committee, um, but not too noisy. Why? Because I'm a team player. And there's absolutely no point whatsoever as a team player dropping off in the media, being disloyal. And I'm afraid politics is a team sport. Mm. What you're seeing at the moment are disingenuous people mm. who are briefing against the Prime Minister, briefing against the government. It is outrageous. Mm. So for me personally, politics is about team. It's not about self. I'm here to serve those who elect me, and that's my focus, hopefully, for as long as I'm an MP. I think also, I think that a general point for me is that the skills that you have in the armed forces are so relevant and they're so applicable. I talk to companies all of the time, my constituency and across the board, they are desperate. They're crying out for good people. My message to all of you is very, very simple. Do not underestimate how good you are. Do not underestimate your skills. Do not underestimate how much utility you have in City Street. Because trust me, the leadership, the camaraderie, the teamwork, the sense of purpose, the unifying purpose that we have is second to none. So be proud, walk tall, and the world's your oyster. Thank you very much. Very good. Nice. Our first round of applause as well on a podcast. So (laughs) thank you very much. It's an experience. Um, James, you mentioned that word serve, service. 
you represent, your constituency represents the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, whose motto is serve to lead. What does service mean to you personally? And how did the, the passing of Her Majesty the Queen impact on, on you? Um, service is very important because ultimately when you take the Queen's shilling, you're there to serve others. Um, and when I was a commanding officer of my regiment, fantastic job, loved it. I was ultimately there to serve my soldiers um, and obviously the training command as well. And I think that um, sense of service, uh, which the armed forces do embody, mm. absolutely there with Her Majesty the Queen. And, uh, you know, who cannot fail to have been impressed by the wonderful funeral? Um, you know, it was very, very sad, um, very profound for the nation and for the Commonwealth and for the world to say goodbye to Her Majesty. But it was also a fantastic occasion for the UK, soft power at its best. And, and I thought that uh, to be part of that and to have met the, uh, the new king was quite extraordinary for me personally. Um, so that example that the Queen set is there for all of us. It endures today. Um, I've no doubt at all that His Majesty the King will continue that. And, um, and as Johnny mentioned, Sandhurst is in the constituency. I'm the MP for Sandhurst. I had a bun fight actually when I first got there because of course Sandhurst, as in the academy, has two MPs. Uh, me to the north, Berkshire End, and Michael Gove, my good friend and neighbour to the south. When I looked at the map and saw where the boundary was between Berkshire and Surrey, I realised that I had the academy. Michael Gove had the front gate. <laughs> so I had to put him back in his box. Um, but he's a great champion of Sandhurst, a great champion of the armed forces, a very eminent politician. Um, and uh, it's great actually being sandwiched between John Redwood, Theresa May, Michael Gove. Um, so I'm not bullied at all. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but service is very important, and uh, I could wax lyrical for, for ever about this, but ultimately we are here to serve others as politicians, as public servants, and that's why military personnel um, are fantastic public servants when they leave the armed forces. And as I said earlier, opportunities are out there. Let's grab them in two hands. So it might have been said before that Michael Gove has been the gatekeeper to many people's political <laughs> careers, um, nice. so, uh, in more ways than one. Um, so just picking up on that element of service, I mentioned earlier, and to my, my wife's uh, pleasure that I'm in the Army Reserves and get to spend lots of time away from the family. Uh, James, you're, you're a reservist as well. Um, going back to Salesforce for a second, how do, how do you think businesses are able to juggle and balance their employees having these other interests, be they serving in the reserves uh, but I'm about second service as well, but serving in local government and politics, as well as things like the reserves. I mean, do you get any kind of pushback or is business supportive of these extracurricular activities? There might be school governors, for example. What can business do to support a second service, be that in uniform, school governors, running your local rugby team? I really don't care as long as we're serving again. Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, it, it's easy for a big company to allow significant freedom of action, <clears throat> uh, and so, of course, it does. And I'm pleased if you look on LinkedIn or wherever you choose to look at, you'll see every week a major company signing the, the gold covenant membership, which is great. And I'd like, actually, for what that actually means to become, to me, to me more, grow what you're, you're committing to rather than a signing service. I know it's more than that, but there's more we can do with this, I think. So that's really easy here. And, and certainly with big companies, I've got no, no problem at all with joining the reserves, doing the reserve service, deploying if required. They can stand gaps. They can do secondments. 
I can't speak for the, I mean I've only been out for a little while I can't speak for smaller companies and, and maybe the rest of the panel can I don't know if they can wear that gap in the man for, sorry, in the um, in their, their their numbers as easily as a big company about. but I you know certainly Salesforce they welcome it and they welcome if people want to take you know do politics in their spare time as long as it doesn't interfere with the ethics of the company uh, then they can fill their boots perfect no and I think if more businesses embrace that culture as well uh, to manage that service they're going to get that in return back so whether they be a reservist or accounts to the skills that they're going to bring back into the business is there to be realized so I would encourage all businesses that sign the armed forces covenant big small medium to really embrace that in your people your best asset um, now I'm going to move on to a slightly thorny issue maybe be a little bit provocative and perhaps we'll keep personalities out of the response from the panel for a second. But can you understand why some people, including myself, um, and I understand that the Office for Veterans Affairs hasn't gone away, uh, despite what people might say on Twitter, it's still there. Uh, But in terms of the Office for Veterans Affairs, which was set up under this government, and that was a manifesto commitment fulfilled, followed up by Boris Johnson, who placed a veterans minister in cabinet. Can you understand why people are a little bit confused? Where we've got Sarah Afton, the excellent Sarah Afton, as veterans minister within the MOD. And then we've got the excellent James Heapy. So two veterans, in fact, as the armed forces minister and with a responsibility for veterans within the cabinet office at the OVA. Can you see why people might be struggling with that and a bit confused? Is it a communications problem that we're facing here rather than the reality of what's actually existing? So I'm going to, I want to get Donna and James's view on this, uh, if I may. Let's, let's go to James first, please. I know you've got a, one or two views on it. Next question, please. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. No, I mean, I'm straightforward. I don't know. It's a simple answer. Uh, I think it's really great that the MOD has got two cabinet positions. Um, ben Wallace is a fantastic politician, good Secretary of State. James C.P. the same. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very, very easy as a former army colonel to stay loyal because we've got some really great guys there. The MOD has had a you know, pretty cracking couple of years in terms of performance and output, so, uh, but there'll be a reason for it. Um, I've no doubt at all that uh, there'll be a review conducted as to why we've got the Cabinet Minister, Nuclear Veterans Affairs. Um, I suspect that uh, it might be that James is looking after governance. It might be that uh, Sarah looking after delivery. Um, but that's for the Prime Minister to answer, and I can't offer any more clarity than that. Uh, fair enough. And yeah, when I did a bit of uh, Googling, I looked up the roles and responsibilities for the Minister for the Cabinet Office as well, the MCO. Um, and they also, he also has a brief uh, that covers off veterans. So effectively, you might have three ministers with some links into veterans. So uh, seems a bit confusing at the moment, quite quite frankly. Uh, but the, the fact that the government is taking it seriously as a, a reasonably niche issue outside of the room, perhaps, that's a good thing. It has to be a good thing. So we'll keep a close eye on that. But the point being is that those in those positions, particularly Sarah Afton and James Heapy, what amazing advocates of the armed forces community. And we're lucky to have them. Sarah is the only female regular army veteran in Parliament. Uh, and she served in the mighty intelligence corps um, as a junior NCO. So that's amazing. It's good news. Um, Donna, I mean, what, what are people telling you around that, uh, around that kind of issue at the moment? Straightforward or not? So, so I'm a pragmatist who likes to focus on the things that we can control. And I think our collective efforts should be focused on uh, making sure our voices are heard and that they're loud. 
Um, and that's not simply about getting more veterans into politics. It's about being a bit more clever about this, that for me, diversity and making sure we are representing the full breadth of our armed forces is now our future, is our future challenge or our current challenge. And let me explain what I mean by that a bit more. Um, it is wonderful to see so many um, veterans serving on the green benches of all colours, of all parties, uh, but most of them uh, are men and most of them are from the infantry. Um, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> most, most, but they're so. When we look at diversity, we want to bring in perhaps some of our future challenges. So, how many people can speak on behalf of you know, or speak and represent our approach to information warfare and more technical aspects of uh, what our armed forces are challenged with? How many of those people can talk about what it's like to wear PPP, PPE as a woman? How many of those can talk about our Commonwealth soldiers and the challenges they face? And so for me, this is about diversifying and bringing in more diversity into our uh, representative uh, representation of um, our armed forces. Um, and let's remember that we are uniquely placed. Um, when you have served, uh, not only do you understand some of those problems because you've lived them, but you also are perfectly placed to connect with our extended armed forces community. And that's with our veterans, with current people who are serving, but also service families. We speak the same language and understand their problems to a greater extent. And therefore, you can be a conduit uh, for their concerns back into Westminster. Um, and so we also are quite good at being able to see through some of the... Uh, some, some, perhaps some of the positioning. So let me take, for example, transition of soldiers out of the armed forces that on, on the face of it, it looks quite good that uh, we've got quite good statistics around uh, uh, how quickly people can, get, 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 can gain good employment after they leave. But I'm always concerned about those folk that don't. Um, and let me describe a little bit more about what I mean, that there are some people that fall between the gaps, uh, particularly those perhaps have served a full career and they've given 20, 30 years of to, to service to our armed forces. But yet, they've fallen between the ga gaps. They find themselves not employed after, after a year. And they don't know how to go about doing it. And our job is to be better at helping them connect and support them whilst they transition out of there. And to, to challenge the MOD uh, around those support structures they have in place. So for me, it's important that we increase our voice so we're loud, but we're also as diverse as we possibly can be. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, James, you want to come in on that one? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, and I, I do, I absolutely appreciate Donna's point that we probably need more um, female MPs with uh, uh, signals backgrounds. Uh, but but I, I, I want to tell a little um, a story about um, my stag do, which was three well, months I... ago. So at my stag do, um, I invited uh, Mark Fletcher MP, who's a, a, a good a good mate of mine, um, amongst uh, a oh, cohort no, we've, we've of all got mates or MPs. No, or no, we do all have mates or MPs, but we don't all have mates who are former um, sergeant majors who live in MPs' constituencies and who talk about local political issues in a very forthright manner and who then get tapped up to become local councillors. Yeah. And, and the key thing for me from a diversity perspective um, that I see is actually the officer cohort um, and the other ranks cohort. Mm. Yeah. And one thing that I'm very passionate about is... Um, sitting here talking about how we really want more diversity is great, but what are you actually doing to make that happen? And I don't think that we need to do 
massive, you know, huge programs. We don't all need to go and start, you know, conservative friends of the other ranks in the armed forces. <laughs> but what we do need to do is when we when we see somebody who is engaged in their local community, who wants to get involved and who doesn't know how to, we say, hey, do you know what? I'm going to hook you up with this person and, and maybe you're going to become a local councillor. Now, maybe Jacko won't. But I think he probably will because of his force of personality, you know, and, and that I think is, is worth sort of saying to your audience is like, you, you, can, you can do this. You can affect the change. You can speak to veterans. You can encourage them to go and do not just, you know, political service, but any kind of service. You know, and you can do it yourself. So, yeah. Okay, so carrying on that theme, what is your call to action to the armed forces community around getting involved in politics directly? And I'll, I'll then get James Sunderland's view on that. And Donna's too, before we then wrap up with Mike. So, so my view is, is quite simple. Um, stop talking about politics in the bar and, and to your mates while you're playing PlayStation or WhatsApping your friends about it and get involved. Now, if you're serving, there's, there, there, there are sort of limits to how involved you can get and that's absolutely right and proper. But if you're a veteran or if you're transitioning out of the army, absolutely 100% look at continuing to serve the country in local politics, in national politics, or in many of the ways that you've also suggested that you've spoken about in your podcast before. Simple. Um, Donna, what's your call to action? Tony, I'm listening today, might be thinking about it. So for me, this is about being a team player. And I think we need to be better at coming together um, as veterans, but also crossing party lines a bit more. Because what I know is that although we might disagree politically, um, we all have the best interests of veterans at our core. Being able to come together and work together in cross-party, in a cross-party way, I think is key. And I think we're quite well-placed to be able to do that. Um, and we need to support each other better. And, and I mean that in a really practical way. So as, as someone who has stood, I know how hard it is to, like, to, to rally people up to come out and campaign for you, particularly when you're, you're pretty far away in deep, dark Wales. Um, and so by stepping up, going out and supporting and campaigning for a fellow veteran uh, believe me is a real force multiplier and it makes you feel supported uh, but it also helps the campaign also brilliant i've got a slightly different call to action from mike at salesforce but uh, james call to action directly i think it varies between individuals actually and i think that my motivation was personal to me but the key point is that service takes many forms and uh, it had to be a politician or a councillor or a police and crime commissioner. We've got veterans in those particular areas. But it's about community, it's about charity work. And, and the utility of the armed forces more broadly is just staggering because we've got 2.2 million veterans in the UK, the vast majority living perfectly healthily and happily. Um, they're force multipliers. And the skills they bring, as I said earlier, are, are, are tremendous. So I think that don't be afraid pursue whatever path you want to as an individual because the rewards are out there absolutely hasn't just got to be politics um and mike so slightly different perhaps the other way what would be your call to action to government um and perhaps mod office veterans affairs uh, around what we're facing with veterans affairs in general and the relationship that business has with the armed forces community okay um so some some, some very good uh, collaborative thinking. I think we'll think similarly. But the area I think that we lack at the moment is uh, the more vulnerable veterans and their partners. And there's, there's quite a number out there. So 2.2 million veterans, wonderful. Most of them are not in trouble. 
uh, and most of their partners are not in trouble either. They're okay. They're, they can look after themselves. They're... We don't have a platform to get and reach those that are in trouble. And that's because they're lost. They're, they're not easily found. It, to identify them as a veteran is not as straightforward as, as you might think. Uh, we've all got personal stories that could prove that point. And their partners, perhaps, in a similar position. And so I would call upon the government to make accessible to the organs of government that are out there, like the VAPCs, like the local authorities, access to that, that data set of who the, who the veterans are and where it's possible with the, vet, with the census, their, their partners. That data set at the moment is dislocated from those organisations because one is held in the MOD and one is held in the Cabinet Office and the two aren't joined at the moment. There you go. What an amazing panel. That concludes today's Veterans in Politics podcast. Um, before we offer a vote of thanks in a second, can I just have a quick round of applause for our panellists, please? Salesforce is actively pursuing, through its friends within the MOD and the Veterans Advisory and Pension Committees, to make veteran data obtainable in a compliant way to the Office of Veterans Affairs. This will have a significant impact in understanding the needs of the veteran community nationally, but also act as a conduit to better enable the VAPCs and local government to understand their veteran communities to help those most in need. Salesforce can bring this vision to light, allowing all veterans to stand up and serve again. And we're enormously grateful for their support in helping us produce this podcast.